People of Note on Fine Music Radio is proudly brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turin Productions. You're listening to Fine Music Radio. This is Rodney Trudgeon welcoming you to this week's edition of People of Note. And the spotlight once again is on ballet because Cape Town City Ballet have just appointed an artistic producer whose name is David Nixon, who is Artistic Director of Northern Ballet from 2001 to 2022, and since then has been freelancing until he arrived here in Cape Town. And David trained as a dancer, first in his hometown of Chatham in Ontario, and then at the National Ballet School of Canada, where his training began in earnest. And it was during this time that he first became interested in choreography, helping to revive a choreographic workshop with the approval of school director Betty Oliphant. Then after further training in Europe, he returned to Canada to train with Eric Brun and the great Russian teacher Eugene Valukin. Lots of posts and experiences and events followed, and now David is here in Cape Town as artistic director of Cape Town City Ballet. So, David, a warm welcome to you to Cape Town. Hello. <laughs> I do see, by the way, that you've been to South Africa before because you've had one of your works presented here. So you know Cape Town in South Africa. Yes, I know this beautiful city. Yeah, okay. Paradise on earth, actually. So when you had the opportunity of applying for this job, was it an easy choice? Um, actually, I, I was—I would phrase it a little bit differently. Um, I was, in a sense, headhunted a little bit by oh, okay. people that knew me and knew that I was sort of um, in a moment of not really doing anything concrete and just sort of questioned whether I would be interested in in looking at the artistic leadership in any shape or form for the company. And I think because uh, I've always had uh, such positive experiences, I've been here um, I'd been here two times prior to that, and both experiences were so positive in the city, and I think it's in a beautiful place. I thought, well, maybe once in my life I might go somewhere where the sun shines. <laughs> yes, especially coming from Canada. Well, actually, in Canada, the sun it's cold, but the sun shines. Um, I was in Berlin for 10 years, and actually there it's quite cloudy, and I've been in England for over 20, 20 years, and it's cloudy and rainy. So, And then I was in Columbus uh, with the Ballet Met in Columbus before Northern Ballet, and that's another city that does have beautiful weather, but it does also have a lot of clouds on it. So the idea of living somewhere where there was sun was attractive as well. And you've come into a particularly sunny patch in Cape Town at the moment. Yes, I have. In the Middle of our, you know, in the middle of our summer, with hot temperatures as well, and does all that appeal to you? Of course. <laughs> Silly question, I suppose, for someone um, who's used to the northern climb, shall we say? So um, you're here now as the artistic producer of Cape Town City Ballet, and you must be, well, at least I presume, you are filled with all sorts of ideas. Yes, um, of course. I, I've got a lot of experience. I've been d- directing for company for 28 years and I've created a a lot of full-length ballets um, very much in the theme of stories uh, which follows very closely onto Veronica Papers um, narrative works and that actually is uh, one of the reasons why it's an interesting place for me 
Um, I I have a great deal of respect and admiration for Veronica. Um, I think often I hear people, you know, they go on about female choreographers, and here was a woman years prior to all of this conversation creating wonderful work and, um, you know, doing it without anybody screaming from the hilltops. Here's a female choreographer. She was just doing it. And... uh, yeah, I mean, the big challenge, of course, is finances these days. Um, it's everywhere, but I think in particular probably in, in South Africa, it's it's one of the, the points that we need to manage and work out. Um, everything seems to cost more than it used to cost, <laughs> and yet we seem to have much less money to pay for it with. Mm-hmm. Also, I've, you know, I'm very fresh to the company, so even though I've made a plan for this season, um, one really needs to get to know the the company that you have, and also the community that you're a part of. And so, therefore, I think if this was a, a longer term relationship, I would be looking to see what the shape of what is the shape of Cape Town City Ballet as a South African ballet company today. What what is that? Mm-hmm. And I think that needs a lot of conversation and an investigation. Yes, right here on the tip of Africa, um, and yet it's got quite a distinguished history, as I'm sure you know, Cape Town City Ballet. It's extraordinary. I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary, the history, when you think of it. Uh, it's celebrating 90 years. Mm, I believe so. Which is far more than um, many companies that are quite famous in, in our ballet world. And it has um, so many unique elements to it. I mean, I think uh, having had David Poole as director during apartheid, who was a man of color, um, extraordinary, mm-hmm. absolutely mm-hmm. extraordinary. And then, of course, as I mentioned, Veronica and, you know, the, the original um, woman who, who started it. Um, Dulcie House, yes. yes. It, this who is, really was a doyen, wasn't she? Yes. Oh. And without these kind of, you know, we, we talk about lack of women in leadership roles, but these women like Dolce, they are the reason these ballet companies are here. And it's all over. It's the same in Australia. It's the same in Canada. It's the same in England. You know, maybe later on, uh, the men started getting interested in uh, taking the leadership role, but they were not the pioneers. And I think, you know, one also has to always reflect upon um, the initiation of a company in those times. It was a really, I mean, it wasn't easy. No, with Probably, the whole uh, thing as well. She would say to me, stop whining. <laughs> I had it much harder starting the company in those days. So. I'm sure she would have. And what a job she did. Gosh, she's quite a legend, as you know. Yes. Elsie Howes. Um, let's take your first piece of music, David. And I'm interested to see that there doesn't seem to be any ballet music here, or is there? But your first piece from Les Mis, Les Miserables, I Dreamed a Dream, a lovely song. And you were singing it to us just now. Trying a little bit, yes. (laughs) Is it just something very special to you? So I think the why, I mean, I have a very close relationship with Claude Michel Schoenberg, the the composer now. But when I was a young person, um, I used to love to see musicals. But when I saw Les Mis, it was kind of uh, a revelation for me because it was something beyond a musical. And I remember sitting in the theater or clapping and clapping and the curtain closed and everyone got up and left and <laughs> I was like, but we need to keep clapping and, and my wife said to me, they don't do that in the musicals, like it's, it's set the bows, it's not like the ballet, as long as people clap, we keep lifting the curtain up and it, it was a, probably a profound experience for me and then 
Later, when I first became artistic director of Northern Ballet, I had a CD placed on my um, desk that said, well, this is some music by Claude Michel Schoenberg for a ballet called Wuthering Heights. And uh, they were supposed to do it in English National Ballet, but because there's been a change of directorship, they, they don't want to do it anymore. Are you interested? And, of course, the first thing I said, Claude Michel Schoenberg? You, you mean Les Mis? And uh, Mark Skipper, the executive director, was like, yes. And so I, I said, wow. So I listened to this music, and I went and I met him in uh, in quite an extraordinary place in uh, Kensington. And um, I mean, for me, his music that he created for dance, um, I have two works by him. I did Wuthering Heights and then uh, an original commission, which was Cleopatra later. I would have done more work with him um, had I had the opportunity, but it, it always speaks to dancers. And sometimes maybe musicians don't feel as um, inspired by it, but dancers are really inspired by his music. And um, I love the work that I did with him. So I dreamed a dream, and I always used to sing it to him. <laughs> and he'd say, oh, you need a little <laughs> bit more coaching here. <laughs> But uh, so I put it on because he means a lot to me and was quite uh, influential in, in my, even though it was only two works we did together, they're two works that meant a lot to me.
music from Les Miserables, arguably one of the most famous songs from Les Miserables, I Dreamed a Dream. And it's the first choice of my guest on People of Note here on Fine Music Radio this week, David Nixon, who's been appointed artistic producer of Cape Town City Ballet and comes from a life, David, of ballet. And I'm interested, one of the things that, I, that always interests me with ballet dancers is when and why and how they turn to choreography. Was choreography always something special? Did you wait or did you wait until you couldn't dance anymore? It's a very good question. Um, and I think my route of choreography is, is a little bit similar to most choreographers, but then it changed. Um, when I was quite young, I, I got involved in choreography with a very good friend of mine, my best friend actually in school, John Elaine, who became a very good choreographer later in life. And we decided that we wanted to bring back this choreographic workshop at the school. And uh, Betty Oliphant said, that's fine, but you have to do it in after hours. So we got our friends together and we did this. And after that, um, it, it reinvigorated this um, choreographic workshop in the school and helped to produce other choreographers, I think. Um, I, I sort of did it a little bit through my f early years. I Not pushing it, but, you know, I choreographed quite a bit when on my wife when I met her and she inspired me to, because she was such an extraordinarily beautiful dancer, um, she inspired me to do some work. And that was my first narrative work. I did a pilot, a very small sort of half an hour version of Madame Butterfly because um, she's Japanese American and it, it just, the music and her dancing just appeared and to her be one. Her look, but it was more the quality of her movement okay. that could express the sound that I could hear in in the Madame Butterfly. And uh, what happened was more when I took over the company in America, uh, again, no money, and yet you've got to produce all these seasons of dance, and how do you do that? And so I, I felt that I needed to start creating myself um, to fill that out. And then what happened was not so much that I think of myself as master choreographer in any shape or form, but my work does bring things out in the dancers. It develops the dancers as artists, and it's partially because it's story ballets. And I can tell a story well, and I emphasize qualities so and characterization. So I, I think that more my route is about it's a marriage as an artistic director choreographer. It's not about being a choreographer. The work is not, you know, for people that are what I would call just choreographers, it's all about their work. For me, it's about the collaboration of working with the artists and what that does for them. And then I always believe that the audience comes to see the performers on stage. The work is a vehicle for the performers. And therefore, I think my work has been successful because it does touch the audience through those performances of those dancers. Good. I'm looking forward to seeing some of your work, David. But also, you mentioned we were talking just now, you were rather about Veronica Paper. And one of her claims to fame, I gather, is her ability to tell a good story, a narrative story. And um, I think you're saying the same thing. This is one of your strong points. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, Veronica, I mean, is a, is a great narrative mm. um, choreographer, of which there are not that many, actually. And um, a lot of people would like to they do full lengths, but often you can sort of look and see where's the story really in this. Yeah. Um, but that's even not, though there is a story, even though there is a story, you have to look for it to find yeah. it, it yeah. which isn't um, 
true of Veronica's work. It's very clear, and she's very clever. The other thing, though, that always um, impressed me with Veronica's work is, and I don't want this to come out as sexist at all, but <laughs> somehow as a man, because you partner a woman, it seems natural to create potatoes, whereas a woman is being partnered. And so I'm always so impressed when... You know, it's the same actually with Kathy Marston, who I've worked quite a bit with, and I had played a role in her um, development as a choreographer. They are very gifted at, at duets. And um, as again, I don't mean this in any sort of sexist way, but it's just from coming from a dancer, as I always understood how to do a pas de deux because I can get up and do the lifts. So I, for them, it's a, it's a different sort of route because they have to almost imagine it more. And so I, I, I'm always impressed by that. Mm-hmm. That's something one doesn't think of, so that's interesting. No. But, David, can you be a choreographer without being a dancer? Or was that a stupid question? It's not a stupid question, and there are choreographers who haven't really been dancers, and there are chore- excellent choreographers who weren't very good dancers, probably. Oh, yeah. um, and I think that it, choreography is a very interesting thing. There's so many facets to it. Some choreographers, their work comes completely from how they move. And um, so they have to physicalize everything. Other choreographers do it differently. They, they use, they co- collaborate much more with the dancers and the work comes, the actual vocabulary comes more from the dancers and they're more editors, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, I started out doing a lot of my work personally, but then I got an injury and couldn't do it and had to switch to really collaborating and it was a much more fulfilling process. I really love the dancers to create some of it and to direct that and to shape it and to work with them because what happens is it fits them better. I I was quite a different male dancer. I was very good at adagio work. I did strong jump and everything, but I could do adage. And I'd come up with things, and my men, especially my first company, would look at me and they'd go, seriously, David, you think we're doing that? (laughs) We can't do that. We don't have those qualities that you have. And I started to understand, yeah, you can't just... That, that's almost putting clothing on somebody that doesn't fit. Mm-hmm. So when you col- when I collaborate, and again, I only want to speak for myself, I find that that fit on the dancer is is really important and, and is something I find beautiful. Don't you miss dancing? Don't you miss dancing your own choreography? <laughs> <laughs> I danced a long time, and I danced a lot, a lot an awful lot, and... Uh, one of the most beautiful parts of it was the work I did with my wife. And that, I I will tell you, I miss. I miss that collaboration with her. She's such a beautiful spirit and such a beautiful artist. Um, But you get to a point where you understand that your body is older and it isn't going to do what you want it to do anymore. And also, you have knowledge that you want to pass on and your interests change. I don't ever sit and watch a performance thinking, well, I'd like to be up there and doing it. And I I think it's quite difficult to direct a company and to have that um, desire for them to reach their potential when you're thinking of your own self all the time. And dancers have to be self-centered. Absolutely, I'm sure. Of all artists, I think. So another piece of music, David. What have you got for us this time? A piece called uh, Never Enough, Greatest Showman. What is that? Greatest Showman. Hugh Jackman. Oh, right, right, Except right. it's not him. It's, uh, he's in the, mu- the movie, of course. So uh, Hugh Jackman was always, <laughs> I just am a huge fan of his. And in fact, I would like to say that I had a little bit of uh, say in his role in uh, Les Mis because I did say to Claude Michel he would be the perfect Jean Valjean. And uh, I uh, immediately went to see Greatest Showman because he was in it. 
And I just found that musical uh, brilliant. And especially this song, when it's sung and how it's presented in the movie, it's, it's just amazing. And I have to confess that I sing it on my own all the time. In fact, I, when I was back uh, visiting the company to um, put on one of my ballets, I have the mic, of course, when I'm directing. And uh, <laughs> immediately they put on the music for me to sing. <laughs> and, uh, of course, the dancers I worked with before knew, oh, here he goes again. But the new dancers were a bit like, is this really happening? Is he singing never enough? So, uh, yeah, it's, it's just a, a, it's a beautiful song. Trying to hold my breath Let it stay this way Can't let this moment end You set off a dream in me Getting louder now Can you hear it echoing? Will you share this with me? Cause darling, without you All the shine of a thousand spotlights All the stars we steal from the night sky Will never be enough
from The Greatest Showman. That was never enough, and it was another choice of my guest, David Nixon, here in Cape Town on People of Note. David's here because he's just been appointed artistic producer of Cape Town City Ballet. And I have to say, from what you've said so far, David, you're sounding very positive and very excited about the future with this company. What has to be. You do, can't really you? take an, <laughs> a new position and, and be negative before you've started. I realize there's lots of challenges, but I have to embrace them and um, see what I, I would really like to have a positive contribution to this great historic company. Mm-hmm. And they have they've had a troublesome few years, so and yet somehow they've kept going, producing stuff every year, every season. So there's a there's a spirit there. I think we call it hiss in this country. When the, <laughs> when the World Cup was on. Chies means spirit, doesn't it? Anyway, um, I wanted to ask about your wife. She's obviously not coming to Cape Town. Or will she come to Cape um, Town? She will come to Cape Town as, I mean, um, we're not permanently here, so it will be on a, a sort of on and off basis. Okay, and okay. when she's available, I mean, she's integral to my ability to change a company. I mean, she's a master teacher and coach, so she will need to be an ingredient in this if, <laughs> if I'm going to achieve anything. Okay. Is she still working then? Does she still do stuff? Yes, my wife will work until the last day, I think. <laughs> really? Yes. A workaholic. Yeah, she just loves loves teaching. I mean, mm-hmm. she loves that passing on of knowledge uh, more than anything. Which clearly you do as well. I do, but not to the depth that she does. Okay. And where, may I ask, is your home? At the moment. At the moment, it's in Leeds in the UK. Oh, okay. Okay. Do you ever go back to Canada? Yes. Um, I'll be going back in March, actually. Because that is where you were born. That is my home country, yes. What did, What made you interested in ballet? What made you take up ballet when you were a young man? I danced almost from day one. Um, we have... Remember when one used to make home movies on yes. films and reels? <laughs> yes. So I, I am in these reels at about three, age three, doing some ballet steps, but I've never seen ballet. I'm doing split jumps and also, so I don't know how I'm doing these steps. And I was constantly um, saying to my mom, I want to take ballet. Well, I don't think I really said ballet, but dance lessons, dance classes, dance classes. So finally, when we moved, we moved from Windsor to Chatham, which is a smaller um, city. And she thought, oh, I'll just enroll him in these classes, and that'll be it. One year, he'll be done. So for some reason, I guess it was ballet and tap. And uh, instead of quitting, I asked for more classes. And it was quite challenging because I was living in a, a hockey town in Canada where you don't do ballet, especially in the 60s. And I was bullied every single day of my life until I went to the ballet school in Toronto. So every day walking to school, I was teased every recess, every lunch hour, every going home. And the the amazing thing was the kids would get tired of it, but they just pass it on. It was like a torch to another group of kids. And, you know, Tina the ballerina, Tina the ballerina, it was just uh, quite, uh, you know, when people talk about bullying today and things like that, I, I really understood. Um, that, that must was. have been quite a challenge for you as well, just to keep going. Um despite all that. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I did get to this point um, in Canada at that time, at least. I don't know if it's the same. Grade one to six, you're in one school. And then you go to another school for seven and eight before you go to high school, which is grade nine. And when I moved schools, for some reason, nobody came with me from my old school. And nobody seemed to know that I took dance. And I all of a sudden had friends. 
<laughs> and I was even almost popular. And so I, and my, you know, I had sort of probably reached what my teacher there could do for me. So I was, the, the interest in dance was waning a bit and the kind of the social life and was going up. And it's only because I'd already um, arranged to audition for the National Ballet School of Canada. And then I got in that I sort of, Oh, okay. And then, so I made the decision to go to the school. And then, of course, because once you're in that school that is about ballet and nobody's bullying you because everyone else is dancing and you have this focus that then I stayed the course and um, I'm here today because of it. <laughs> exactly. But um, you rose to the top rather quickly, didn't you, to become a solo dancer and all that? Well, I think I, I was at an interesting time um, because uh, – I was sort of a new generation of dancers. I was much more flexible and um, in, in, in many ways had more, much more facility than the, a lot of men had up to that point. Because a lot of the, the corps de ballet men in the, you know, the 70s especially, if they could do a double tour and hold a girl, that was it. They got a job. And I all of a sudden, you know, could do the splits and could do steps that... Um, and tap. I could tap. I was always still at, and flamenco actually. The tap oh, dancing really? helped. I did a lot of flamenco in school, oh, and wow. even did a flamenco ballet in the company. So yes, flamenco played a big role in me, in my dancing life. And you don't miss it because, in a sense, you are absolutely still involved, immersed in ballet as a choreographer. Miss it in what sense? You, you, it's the performing you think. Yes, you're moving. that's yes, that that being on stage with the spotlight. I don't miss the on stage. I mean, I had it at a time in my life, and, you know, that, that, that I don't miss. I, I miss the process of being in the rehearsal room and that discovery that you go on. Um, I'm a bit unusual. A lot of dancers prefer the performances to the rehearsals. I prefer the performance, the rehearsals <laughs> in some ways. <laughs> I, I, that was where you discover. That's where you, you refine and you, you find new things and you stretch yourself. The performance is a culmination, and it's almost the end so um, yeah I miss that element somewhat but I don't miss performing do you and your wife have children no we never had okay kids. okay no. so that frees you both up doesn't it enormously in to some follow ways. the sorts of careers you're doing yes yes but then when you have a company they are like your children so oh, I well I've seen you know I, I've had most of my dancers have come to me at 18 or 19 and leaving me in their mid-30s and you see them, you know, they're a young kid starting off their career. You're a mentor for them. You're a boss. And then you become a colleague as they evolve because you're more collaborating with them in the studio. And then eventually you become a friend. You're kind of a father figure. You Absolutely. see them get married. You see them have kids. I mean, it, it is a form of, you know, you are part of their life. Mm, very much the, the way you put it like that. Absolutely. David, we're going to have another piece of music now. And I see you've got Avo Pet. Now, this piece, Spiegel am Spiegel, about a mirror. What? It's, it's a, a hypnotic piece. So I'm interested, intrigued to know why you've chosen it. So this is an extraordinary piece of music, and I think he's a particularly extraordinary co composer, actually. And the first time I ever heard this music was to John Neumeyer's uh, duet in Otello. And uh, I saw it with uh, Gigi Hyatt and Gamal. Um, who created the, the the ballet with John, and I was so struck by the power of the 
the simplicity of the music, I guess, combined with the simplicity also of John's choreography at the same time. And I found it absolutely stunning. And I always wanted to use this music. Um, and so later when I was creating Dracula, and uh, Dracula for me was it was a ballet that was decided in Columbus by the marketing committee that we we should take advantage of Halloween because it's a big thing in America and we could sell tickets. And I just kept thinking, you know, Dracula, you know, popping out of a closet with fangs and it's just very tacky. <laughs> and so I started to read a lot of the original stories and um, started to see a different way. And then all of a sudden that music came back into me. And it became the anchor of the ballet. It, it's a pas de deux in the second act that takes place between Dracula and Mina when he's basically come to kill her, but he can't. And she also can't deny herself of him. And so it's about this idea of love transcends everything. Like, you, you shouldn't participate, but you have no choice. And it's also a very mature moment. It, it's, it's not a Romeo and Juliet balcony scene or anything like that. It's two, two adults um, bearing themselves to each other. And this music just, uh, it seems to work. I mean, whatever you put on it, it, it seems to love it and make something special of it. So from John to my own creation, um, Mr. Part has given me a great gift.
Well, that's that haunting work called Spiegel am Spiegel by Arvo Pert. And it was another choice of my guest, David Nixon, recently appointed artistic producer of Cape Town City Ballet. And just listening to that and that hypnotic effect it creates, I now desperately want to see your ballet, Dracula. <laughs> Who'd have thought of putting Dracula to ballet? Well, you did. There, there was a previous one before me. I wasn't the origi- originator, oh. but it was a little bit more like Giselle as a vampire oh, right, ra- rather okay. than really Dracula, Dracula okay. in some ways. Okay. But now talking about Dracula and talking about choreography and talking about storytelling, yes. you've done a lot of, um, you've created a lot of ballets from stories and things. For example, like Madame Butterfly, mm-hmm. which, as we know, is a world famous opera. Beauty and the Beast, The Great Gatsby, um, Cinderella, things that weren't written for Isabella. Well, Cinderella was, thanks to Prokofiev. I didn't use the Prokofiev score, though. I had an original score composed by Filofini. Okay. It's quite different. The Three Musketeers. Oh, yeah, I see Dracula here. Peter Pan. So you obviously enjoy taking these things from another sort of genre, really, and turning them into a ballet. Yes, I mean, I think a lot of today um, we've lost the understanding that as artists you're inspired by things, so you're not stealing them when you you recreate something around it. You're 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 responding to it. So, for instance, uh, I have always loved The Great Gatsby. Um, I saw the Robert Redford film when I was in school, and the language of Fitzgerald is something that is. Um, in its in a different way, mesmerizing in your head and the visuals it can create, and I can't, of course, actually capture that in dance. But it does inspire me to show something of what I took from the book on stage in my genre, which is ballet. Um, it was the same in with with Madame Butterfly. Yes, my wife is Japanese, so therefore that seemed like a kind of. A, a marriage there, but it was my love of Japan from going there with her and the kabuki and the movements there and the aesthetic and I wanted to share what had touched me and so that's really why um you know also I mean that's one of the reasons why I use use these stories, but also in ballet, people are afraid they think they don't understand it. It's my problem, David, can I tell you I told Robin Taylor, and she was shocked and horrified but I'm scared of ballet because I don't understand it. But you see, I always say, when you go to a museum and you stare at a painting or a sculpture, why do you think you understand that any better without... You don't. You just look at it, don't you? Yes. Okay. And dance is the same. You don't need to understand anything. And half the time, you know, choreographers will write down all these things that they're doing. It's You won't see it, necessarily. That's their inspiration. And, you know, it's, it's, we use these things um, as a backbone for the dance to portray the the movement in space and these these qualities that these these beautiful young dancers uh, any dancer has and so i i think that what we have ended up doing is anchoring a sort of sense of confidence so you've read the great gatsby you've seen the movie or you've heard about it 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 has images of people doing the charleston jazz music oh i could go see that so people can put themselves in that. I always say we can't sell things that people can't imagine dance. So Cleopatra was a great seller because people think of Cleopatra dancing for some reason, probably because of her scanty little outfits and things that they, they've <laughs> yes. seen. 
but and that, that famous that, film. Yes. Whereas Hamlet, which was probably one of my personally most interesting things that I, works I did because of the adaptation, didn't sell because people can't necessarily see Hamlet as a ballet. And in fact, when I interviewed uh, a group of uh, theater package sort of what do you call them they sell to groups to go to, to performances they said you know oh, well they can't even sell hamlet as a play it seems too out of people's sort of scope of imagination of what they might like to see yeah. so uh, it, it's and did it work the ballet yes the ballet's brilliant i mean i don't usually say that about anything of mine but i did an adaptation with a theater director i worked a lot with uh, patricia doyle and we placed the ballet in 1940s occupied paris and why this works so well is it's it's about home and hamlet is about home it's about coming home and it isn't your home anymore and so when this young man who goes off to fight as a French soldier comes home and it's filled with Nazi soldiers and his uncle is dressed as a Nazi, it's no longer his home, is it? And, of course, things like Ophelia, she when she um, goes slightly crazy and she goes wandering out without her papers and the soldiers find her, of course, things happen, and and the darkness of the story is there. And the same with, with with Gertrude. You know, she's only trying to protect her son, which he can never really understand. You know, yes, there's perhaps some attraction between her and um, the uncle, but the base element of it is how do you save your child in this situation where your home is occupied? So it's a very dark ballet. I've never done anything as dark or as theatrical. The dancers loved it so much that even when we didn't have much of an audience and I'd say, oh, I'm sorry, it's not very well sold, <laughs> they said, we don't care if there's a single person in the theater. We want to do it. Wow. So that was a nice moment in what life. What a nice thing for the dancers to yes, say. Yes, yes. So, David, just having heard about Madame Butterfly and about Hamlet and about Dracula, now that you are artistic producer here in Cape Town, is there any chance we might see some of your stuff like that? Well, yes. So the first work we're doing in May is a program I did uh, as a tribute to Gershwin called I've Got Rhythm. And I thought that this would be a, a really nice introduction to the company. It's not as narrative, but it are li it's a lot of little ballets like American in Paris, Cuban Overture, Rhapsody, Girl Crazy mixed in. And so I, I think as an introduction to myself and to them, it's, it's quite good. And later on, I'm hoping that we can produce in a, a different, smaller theater my... Uh, very um, intimate version of Dangerous Liaisons. So that would be the first <laughs> moment into uh, narrative. I'm not sure what Cape Town thinks of Dangerous Liaisons, but we'll, we'll test the waters. Well, the film was hugely popular, wasn't it? Yes. I mean, everyone I mean, raved about yes, it. Yes, it's, it's a fantastic movie. I mean, ca the, um, most of the casting was pretty bang yeah. on. Um, and then we'll see what the future brings. I would love to do Dracula in the beautiful theater we have here in, in Cape Town. Mm -hmm. It's an, why I would like to do it is because it brings in a different audience. It, it interests people that might not otherwise come to the ballet. And, and that's important for our audience development. Very much so. I mean, audience development is very important. Key. Cape Town Ballet, I think, has got a good following. So you've got a bit of a basis to work with. Have you worked at all with them yet, or are you just I, no, putting stuff yet. in your office? I'm just enjoying the sun at the moment and talking to you. <laughs> well, it's going to be exciting seeing you here in Cape Town and see what you do. Thank and you. Um, David, thanks for coming to chat. I know it's a busy time for you just settling in. 
But thanks for coming to chat. And we'll do it again. We'll talk. If ever you do one of your own ballets here, we'll have another little interview and talk about it mm, to whet you. people's appetite. Your last piece, in fact, is from Madame Butterfly, the famous One Fine Day. And when you were choreographing this, did you do anything special? Because it's such a famous moment in the opera. Yes. Yeah, so this was, as I said earlier, was a ballet, a workshop ballet that I developed into a full length that was inspired by by my wife to do something for my wife. And it goes back one step earlier. There's a movie that's in one of the um, prison camps during World War II with uh, Vanessa Redgrave in it. And she's a singer in it. And the commandant in the, I, I forget what the title of the movie is, but the um, commandant loves music because of course Germans do and there's one moment in this where she doesn't sing it but she sings it one fine day and it's extraordinarily moving to see this woman who's a prisoner in a concentration camp singing this song and what you can see in her face is she sees that day and so I was so inspired to see if in any way I could capture that in the dance and um, my wife because of the kind of dancer she was, she could capture in her own way this this extraordinary thing that uh, Puccini has in the music um, that I think we all are dreaming um, in one way or another of that one fine day. I know you were telling me about the recording you would have chosen, but then you couldn't remember the singer. Would you mind the great Maria Callas? Who could ever mind the great <laughs> Maria Callas? David Nixon, thank you very, very much for spending time with us. My pleasure, Rodney. Thank you.
People of Note on Fine Music Radio was proudly brought to you by Peter Turin Productions.
If 